Welcome to the Geriatric Journal Club, featuring practical discussions on the front line of post-acute and long-term care issues that you wrestle with every day. Statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. This journal club session was held on February 23rd, 2022. So I want to welcome everyone to um, FMDA's journal club uh, this February in 2022. It feels like it's been a very long time, but I know we spoke last month. Um, today, I'm very excited because we're joined by Dr. Reyes and Dr. Satovolu. I don't know if I said the name right, but um, they'll be introducing themselves in a, in a few moments. If we could go ahead and start with um, just the overview, what we're going to do as far as our agenda, we're going to just run through some hot topics um, I'm sure you'll be shocked when you hear about what the hot topics are. And then we're going to do a deep dive into atrial fibrillation and open it up for discussion. Um, if you go to our next slide, um, just so that you know everyone is not shocked, it is still COVID as the hot topic. But you know, we do have some um, really encouraging signs and and a lot of better news that we've had in the, the previous months. I think when we last spoke, we were doing a lot of forecasting and we thought we would be seeing a, um, a, a decline in cases. And if as we advance to the next slide, you'll see that we have seen a sharp decline over the past few weeks. Um, the seven day moving average in the US for positivity rates is 11.17%. In Florida, that's dropped down to 8.2%. We're still seeing a, a larger number of cases and a higher number of deaths than what we saw with the Delta wave, but it does feel like we're moving um, in a good direction in what we thought we were going to see per that forecasting. Um, the next slide is just another view from um, of the data where we're looking at cases versus deaths. And as you can see, we're going down for both of those. Um, I believe last yesterday we had 49,965 new cases, um, but um, we've locked in only 655 um, deaths. So the numbers are getting a little bit better. And what we're seeing when it comes to um, variant proportions, I, I've uh, had a lot of questions about this in the recent weeks. Um, if you advance to the next slide for me, Shane, um, we're still seeing that the predominant um, variant is the BA 1.1 um, for the Omicron. Um, we do see other variants of Omicron, but uh, you know we're we're tracking that. We haven't seen a a new surge with it. We're just um, monitoring those cases. And there is a lot of, uh, of studying being done um, at the, with the CDC and other um, um, institutions across the country trying to predict wh where we're going next. For now, the, the biggest question I think that we've been, been on our mind is what does this mean um, and where are we going in the future? And you may have heard the word endemic a lot. I've um, actually had a great conversation with Dr. Swati Gar in January about 
um, being prepared for an endemic and what that looks like for post-acute long-term care. And if we go to the next slide, you know, it's just something that we need to start thinking about. Um, we now have more tools in our toolbox with the vaccinations and the boosters, which we're still lagging behind with boosters. So we need to continue to encourage our, um, our staff and our residents and um, our, our fellow um, clinicians to um, be boosted. But we really do need to make plans and preparations of what does that look like in the future. One thing I will say that I'm very happy about is that it now feels like we're ready as a um, journal club to move forward and not just focus only on COVID topics. So with that, um, if you go to the next slide, Shane, just want to say that this month is the American Heart um, Month, and it is a really good um, gives us a great opportunity to introduce our topic that Dr. Reyes like sent to us as an idea last month and I, I'm really excited for it. So I am going to turn this over to Dr. Reyes and um, um, Dr. Sato Volu. Did I say it right yet? No? Yeah, you, you got it. You got it close enough. <laughs> all right, so I turn it all over to you guys. I want a quick, quick introduction, Dr. Sanders. Thank you very much again for allowing me to be here in this room. Um, obviously, I'm a bias. I'm biased to say all the time that if I if I have to determine value on the professional membership I have, you know, FAMDA is still number one by far. Um, and I have to, you know, one of the perks of my job is that I have the pleasure and the honor to work with very, very, very smart people like Chanu who is gonna be co-presenting with me today. Um, also, I wanna acknowledge that Dr. Gold, I think I think I saw him on, on, on the list of guests. I think that, um, uh, and I, if I'm not mistaken, yes, Dr. Goldberg is here and I just wanna acknowledge his presence because, and because Dr. Goldberg was the reason why I became a geriatrician. He was my attendant when I was a PGY2 and he was the one who brought me for the first time to a home visit. and. And he was, you know, he, he, he was the inspiration that, that served me to decide to pursue this career. So thank you for being here. And also obviously Dr. Auslander, my mentor, thank you very much again and everybody. Uh, with that, I pass it along to uh, Shanu. So he's gonna start um, talking. And Shanu, I, I, I will just tell me when you want me to pass um, each slide, okay? Yeah, thank you very much, Dr. Reyes. Um, and uh, thank you very much, Dr. Sanders and everybody on the, on the panel, I really appreciate this opportunity to uh, be presenting. Um, as you know, Dr. Reyes mentioned, it's kind of like a chain uh, that we're following. Dr. Reyes has been an excellent mentor for me as well. I really, really, you know, appreciate his um, his his uh, giving me this opportunity to actually present in, in front of you know an elite panel like you, like all of you guys. So thank you very much. And just to jump in real quick, sorry to interrupt, Dr. Reyes. Do you want to share the slides, or do you want me to continue to do so? I, I will share this slides. Okay, you're willing to go if you just want to go ahead and share your screen. Uh, I will. Actually, no, you, you do it. Go ahead. I'm sorry, you, you go ahead. It. No worries. All right, whenever you're ready, thanks. All right, perfect. All right, so without further ado, uh, we can move on to the next slide. All right, no conflict of interest, as noted. All right, so 
I'll start by saying um, atrial fibrillation is actually one of the most common arrhythmias and cardiovascular diseases that we typically encounter in the healthcare with almost 6.1 million people affected in, in the United States. Um, out of which a big chunk of this number can be attributed to the geriatric population with almost, as you can see, 10 to 17% of prevalence in patients beyond the age of 80 years or older. Um, what's also interesting is that the population of patients about the age of 65, have what we see doubled from 12% in 2010 to 22% in 2040. And actually, based on the data from Framingham Heart Study, the prevalence of atrial fibrillation actually has increased over threefold in the last 50 years. And it's actually estimated that by 2050, um, we could expect to see about 16 million patients um, affected in the U.S. itself. Um, and if I, if I remember correctly, I think it's about expected 14 million in Europe and about it's a whopping 72 million um, patients in Asia. Um, and so what we do also have to make note in this type of a situation is that the increase in awareness and enhanced detection of atrial fibrillation um, has improved significantly over the past decade, which has actually been very, very crucial in identifying about more than a third of the, of the AFib population um, who are actually typically asymptomatic. Um, so, oh, are you not able to hear me? Sorry. We can hear you. You can hear me? Okay. All right. So with increasing numbers and prevalence, there is naturally a proportional increase in financial burden on the U.S. healthcare system. Um, and as you can see with the figure, that's kind of roughly estimating um, 20, about $6 billion, sorry, not 26, but $6 billion annually. Uh, can we move to the next slide, please? So when it, when it comes to the relationship between aging and the genesis of, or you know, the propagation of atrial fibrillation, there are a few key concepts that we do need to understand in regard to the pathophysiology. So the development of AFib typically requires two major components, which are the initiation of a trigger and the formation of an anatomical or electrical substrate. The former, that out of which I mentioned, actually plays a much more crucial, crucial role in the pathogenesis of what we call paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, as opposed to the latter um, playing more of an important role in the persistent or long-standing persistent um, atrial fibrillation. And what I basically mean by this is that one of the main triggers of atrial fibrillation is from the pulmonary vein sleep. Um, which actually engulfs uh, a little bit of the, the proximal portion of the left atrium. So many times when these trigger points are targeted, such as in pulmonary vein isolation and ablation, we actually see a complete resolution of the disease process. But you know, most of the time when it comes to the sustenance of these triggers, it happens mainly due to the structural changes and the electrical remodeling um, causing formation of new re-entry re circuits and reducing the atrial refractory period. Now, when it comes to structural changes, it's, it's things like left atrial enlargement, mm -hmm. um, which typically occur due to valvular diseases like mitral stenosis and, um, and or mitral regurgitation. But at a histopathological level, atrial fibrosis, which typically occurs with aging, is, a, is, is very huge in, in this propaganda or maintenance of atrial fibrillation. 
Um, but it's not just aging. There's a lot of there's a lot of comorbidities that actually adds to the complexity of 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 this of this process of this of this atrial fibrosis. The comorbidities such as diabetes, hypertension, um, various different cardiomyopathies. These all play a very big role in abetting this process. Um, and even in, in sometimes in younger individuals as, as well, you'll sometimes see that atrial um, tissue fibrosis actually happens even prior to the age of 55 or 65. And typically this hap actually happens when, you know, you have um, patients you know, who are sometimes alcoholics, you'll see that type of uh, situation occurring where that actually plays a bigger role in fibrosis. Um, so in these type of situations, even with successful cardioversions, there are high chances that patients can revert back into atrial fibrillation. So moving on, um, with the other risk factors for AFib, as I already discussed, there these various risk factors actually play a very crucial role in not only formation of trigger points, but also in structural and electrical remodeling of the atrial tissue. Now, out of all of these risk factors, cardiothoracic surgery is one of the most common risk factors that's actually directly associated with the development of atrial fibrillation. And that's actually mainly because through surgery, we're directly manipulating the tissue. We're actually causing injury to the tissue and causing fibrosis. Um, and as I already mentioned, fibrosis is a very, very huge propaganda for uh, maintenance or sustenance of this atrial fibrillation. Um, another really big risk factor that's actually mentioned here as well is, is sleep apnea, which um, is like, I, I always like to mention this as a modifiable risk factor. And it needs to be, this, this is one of the first things that needs to be evaluated um, after diagnosis of atrial fibrillation in, in patients. Because, uh, you know, controlling the issue a lot of the times has controlled the propagation of, of atrial fibrillation. Apart from all of these in elderly populations, chronic subclinical inflammation, which is what is actually defined as continuous low-grade activation of the systemic immune response is actually a hallmark of biological aging across multiple, multiple organ systems. And as a result, it actually plays a very, very big role in the development of atrial fibrillation. Can we move to the next slide, please? <clears throat> so when it comes to the management of atrial fibrillation, we can view it in, in by identifying actually four major pillars. Um, and they typically constitute lifestyle modification, um, oral anticoagulation, rate control, and rhythm control. Um, out of all of these, the latter three are actually of more particular importance in this po patient population that we're discussing about today, specifically um, about the geriatric patients, excuse me, who reside in long-term care facilities. Um, one of the biggest challenges that we as physicians encounter in these type of situations is how their socioeconomic, um, can we keep, um, uh, can we click the next button, please? Uh, yeah, and then the next again. Yeah, thank you, sorry. Um, and these, so basically what I'm saying in these type of situations is how their socioeconomic and functional status along with their multi, like morbidity and polypharmacy play a huge role and limiting the management of atrial fibrillation. Um, can we move to the next one, please? A lot of the times, geriatric patients with various comorbidities, such as history of GI bleed or AVM, limit their use of medications like oral anticoagulations, or you know, sometimes with patients who have a history of hypothyroidism, for example, they limit the utility of antiarrhythmics like amiodarone. Even certain drug-to-drug -drug interactions, such as, uh, let's say, for example, someone who's taking donepezil, which already has a tendency to cause bradycardia and you're introducing a rate limiting uh, medication that itself has now a higher tendency, a higher risk of actually 
uh, causing sinus bradycardia or causing fall in these type of individuals. Um, apart from that, you know, frailty, as we, as you can see, is already another important factor which is unique to this patient population. We're going to discuss more about that as we move forward. Um, it's a question that we commonly find ourselves asking is do certain management modalities pose more of a risk versus benefit in these type of patient populations? Can we move to the next uh, point, please? It's typically in these type of situations, we use our clinical acumen guided by evidence-based literature to help make these decisions. But also this is where informed decision-making also, do, also does play a very crucial role um, in these type of situations as well. So I, I, a lot of the times discussing risks and benefits of various managements, especially on a case-to-case -case basis, uh, would typically help patients and families gain more insight into their disease process and what they would believe would be beneficial for themselves or for their family member. So that's actually all from my end. Moving forward, I'll let Dr. Reyes take it from here. Um, thank you again for this opportunity. Thank really you. appreciate it. Thank you, Shano. So, uh, Sean, I'm going to take over, okay? Yes, sir. So, uh, see if I have control. You should be able to just click and share your screen. Let's see. Okay, so uh, so can you see my presentation? Yes. Okay. So I. Okay. So, well, again, thank you very much. Well, I'm going to start with a case, and um, this is an 81-year-old female living in your assisted living facility. She was found by the CNA in the morning, lying in bed, disoriented. She has a past medical history of hypertension, diabetes, and obesity, and she was transferred via ambulance to your local hospital. Physical exam when she made it to the hospital was an elevated high blood pressure with irregular heart, you know, irregular um, uh, heartbeats, 150 uh, heart rate. She had a right hemiparesis and she has lower speech as well as a patient. Her EKG shows atrial fibrillation. She didn't have a prior history of that. She was found not to be a candidate for TPA or thrombectomy. She was evaluated by the neurologist after and the workup was negative uh, for other causes of stroke except for the AFib that was still present in telemetry throughout the admission. The patient was discharged to a post-acute facility to actually the nursing home that is attached to your ALF. She was started on oral anticoagulation and you know, she suffered a fall four months after what resulted in intracranial hemorrhage and she died in the hospital. The question for the group now is, do you think that this was avoidable? Um, so now having, okay. I'm sorry guys, I'm having a, having difficulty here. 
Sean, I think it's better if you take over. My computer got possessed. <laughs> okay, just one second. I'm sorry. Okay, so could you go to where it says speak avoidable? So it depends, yes. So, and, 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 and the issue is, is avoidable depending on, 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 on the aspect of the case that you're looking, that you're looking at, okay? It depends on if this is, I mean, if this is a patient that was a good candidate for anticoagulation, and maybe you know we shouldn't start them on on anticoagulation, despite the fact that they, they had atrial fibrillation and they had a and, and you had a recent stroke, or with the fact that maybe by um, by um, identifying atrial fibrillation uh, sooner, we could avoid uh, you know the stroke by you know by, by preventing it by treating the disease itself. Okay, so can I do the next one, please? And. You know, when you look at atrial fibrillation and stroke mortality, um, it, it is clear that, and the literature has been very clear about this, that, that uh, the, the, the survival actually suffers by, you know, the onset of stroke in patients with atrial fibrillation. Actually, the stroke is considered the most catastrophic, um, you know, complication of atrial fibrillation, despite, obviously, you know, besides, obviously, when it develops to, you know, hemodynamic instability from RVR or for poorly rate control. Um, but obviously, you know, stroke being the most fear complication of atrial fibrillation. Uh, next. And then when you talk about, when Shanu was talking about benefits of, 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 of treatment, next, uh, we're talking about um, that, that there is not only, if you look in the literature, there is not only a thromboprophylaxis benefit of anticoagulation, there is also mortality benefits. And actually, when I when I when I teach my my medical students and I teach uh, the medical residents, there are plenty of studies in the literature. The the one that I that I quote the most was one uh, done uh, by the Dutch uh, on patients above the age of ninety, where actually these patients were started on coagulation, and not only they had less strokes, but also they lived longer. Next one. So and 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 the most impressive thing is that the benefits of coumadin or or, or, or or, or warfarin is actually age independent. And few studies actually have proven that even, even for, for as, the, as age, as, as patients get older, the actual benefit it seems to be, the net benefit seems to be even higher in terms of thromboprophylaxis prevention. Next one. Again. So, I mean, the, the first thing we need, to, we, need to, we need to have clear is that every cognition and treatment of atrial fibrillation is vital to improve outcomes. Why? Next one. Because there's greater, there's greater incidence of cardioembolic stroke, especially in the patient population that we manage. Um, in, um, in, um, it, it, is, it is very clear that frailty has been linked to significant worse outcomes not only if you have a stroke, but also next one, if there is, if, if the, with, with actual functional decline, next one, um, because atrial fibrillation is independently associated with lower usual gait speed, next one, and um, the even 
even patients that have atrial fibrillation, although not in the same age group that are usually managed in our homes, um, is twice as, 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 as likely than patients not having atrial fibrillation. Next one. Um, there is increased, there is, a, there is a document increase of dementia among patients with atrial fibrillation as well. And this independent of the fact that they develop a stroke or not. Next one. And so if you say, well, if there are so many benefits, why we're not for atrial fibrillation? Um, um, and, and, and the, and, and the, the, the most, the, the, when you look at the literature, and I'm just quoting here the SAFE study, which you know published around 2015, looking at the actual value and cost-effectiveness of uh, routine screening for atrial fibrillation, what they found is that the reality is that the, regardless of how many people you screen, the threshold where the where where the, the, there is there is def definitely not next. Could you hit again? And then um, that that utilizing um, continuous, uh, sorry, or using screening actually is not a cost-effective intervention, okay? Uh, next one. And if we decide to screen for atrial fibrillation, I mean, we, we, we have as, as practitioners, especially in the settings that we practice, um, the fear of anticoagulation. And although there are tools nowadays that, um, that uh, help us, uh, you know, doing informed consent. And the one that I use mostly is this one that you see is the Spark tool. You can find it online um, for free. And what you, what it is is a combination of the um, of the chat bass two and 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 the Hasbled, and it gives these nice graphics that you can see on the right side of your screen. Um, and could you next? And what you can see is that, for example, when I'm deciding or I'm talking to a patient about, you know, the anticoagulation, we actually can see on the bars in blue, the actual reduction, what is the actual risk of having a stroke when you get treated and what is the, what is the actual risk of bleeding, which is the red bar. Now, if you see it in, in a crude mode here, um, and if you see, well, the, if, if in medication, in a medication like rivaroxaban, um, look at the risk of bleeding on a patient just like the patient that we had in our in, in our case. So the actual risk of bleeding is around 6%, and the, and the risk of a stroke is 4%. So you, you can, you know, it, it's difficult sometimes to set these numbers next, but when you really see what happens where your actual risk is with no therapy, you still see a, 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 a potential risk reduction of, of around 6%, okay? Next one. And the problem also that you see with these scores is that frailty itself is not considering any of these scores, which could be again um, possible. I mean, based on, on, on our common practice, could be a high a high risk or could be a risk factor for you know for, for bleeding when you start anticoagulation on these patients. Next. Um, so again, why screen or not screen for atrial fibrillation on, on, on our patient population? And the first article I want to bring today's journal club um, is one that was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine. It was published in November of last year. And the, the study actually included more than half a million Medicare beneficiaries that were taking anticoagulation, either warfarin 
or the three major uh, neuroantagonists that are right now in the market. Um, and what they found, um, and, and what they did is the propensity match group. I mean, it always was a retrospective study. Uh, and what they found is that, you know, if you looked at the, that common fear that we have that these newer medications have a high, are higher risk of bleeding, or the net benefit of using these newer medications is less than with warfarin. When you look in the study that was published, is that at least where the two major players in the market, that is rivaroxaban and, and epixaban, um, both are at least as good in terms of the net benefit. But if you look in the frail population, okay, and this is the two graphs that I have here, um, epixaban tend to have a, a better net benefit. So now these newer evidence and real world data on patients that are out actually out in the street uh, taking these medications, you can see that the, the, there is an acceptable risk when you compare of bleeding when you compare with when you compare with the use of warfarin. And in the case of epixaban, there might be even a better uh, a, a better safety and benefit profile. Next one. So, if we have now that we that we established that that there are therapeutic options, and again, I'm not saying that we're going to start everybody on on anticoagulation. Um, the next study that I want to bring, or the next publication I want to bring to your attention, was the United the United States Prevention Task Service Task Force. Um, recently, actually, just a few weeks ago, uh, came up with recommendations about screening for atrial fibrillation. Okay, next. And what they did is they 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 um, they published these recommendations uh, to be aimed at patients that are above the age of fifty. Okay, um, that that don't have. Uh, the diagnosis for symptoms of atrial fibrillation. Again, these are mostly for asymptomatic patients. Um, and there are a couple of things that I found curious. Uh, for them, the standard of care for trigger screening is pulse palpation. I found that fascinating. And one of the things that I miss, and I have not seen my medical students, I have not seen the CNAs in the nursing home, and even myself, I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of it, is actually checking somebody's pulse. Um, so maybe now we have a good reason to start doing it again. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I want to bring to your attention the main two, uh, three trials that they use to base this recommendation on: the screen AFib, the stroke stop, and the rehearsed atrial fibrillation. All three trials next had a um, had different intensities of screening. Okay. Um, one of them actually uh, was, was uh, focusing a lot in one screening strategies, and the other ones had intermittent and continuous screening strategies, okay? So the most important point I'm gonna make here is that they included in their recommendations different types of screenings in terms of intensity, in terms of duration, um, and the issue is we know in the literature that continuous screening for arrhythmias actually tends to yield, um, you know, better, you know, more sensitive results. Um, so next one. So what they found and what they found is that they don't have sufficient evidence to recommend oh. or go against screening. Okay. 
but also they acknowledge that there are emerging technologies that have been proposed for screening for atrial fibrillation. So those are the two main messages that I got from that. Okay, so next. Now, what I want to bring to your attention in terms of the two, two, you know, two specific points of the recommendations is they acknowledge there is adequate evidence that intermittent and continuous screening um, uh, with previously undiagnosed atrial fibrillation could be more effective than usual care. So if, I mean, I could infer from this that if, we'll, if we will focus more on obtaining data or, or designing studies that use more continuous screening, we might find a different result that it can, um, that I can keep over the type of recommendation that they will give. Um, and also the fact that, um, that they, they specifically mention parox paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, okay? Um, which is the one that you, you will tend to miss the most um, if you're not using continuous um, um, uh, monitoring. Um, next. So the point I'm gonna make is that nowadays we, we may have new technology that allow to perform continuous monitoring, okay? And that in the patient population that we serve, as Chenu, um, uh, you know, accurately said, um, the changes that occurred with age are mostly uh, the ones that are going to trigger the more continuous type of atrial fibrillation more than the more than the paroxysmal type. Okay, so I want to make those two points clear: a that these recommendations have some weight on not only on persistent atrial fibrillation, but also in the utility of, of continuous screening for, um, for, um, for paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, but also the fact that, that, um, that also focus a, lot based on, uh, focus a lot on the fact that they are recommend, their recommendations include screening for paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. Next one. So, Again, where is the case to screen or not screen? Next. Well, I mean, if you think about it, the rationale for screening asymptomatic people is to initiate oral anticoagulant medications early enough to prevent thromboembolic events, okay? Also to prevent uh, the development of further arrhythmias or uncontrolled atrial fibrillation, next. And again, AFib, as Chenul uh, described, is very prevalent in the population that we serve. Next. In addition to that, um, you know, up to 20% of the patients um, who had a stroke with atrial fibrillation, the first sign that they will have of having the disease is that actual stroke, just like the case that we presented at the beginning. Next. And that, um, and that, that, in addition to the obviously the stroke risk, um, so the the these these patients obviously they will the, the, the condition or or the lack or, or the decondition that would occur from a stroke in frail patients obviously is going to be more devastating. But in addition to that, the actual presence of atrial fibrillation without suffering a stroke also affects function. Next one. So again, if atrial fibrillation is found. In my opinion, we have the tools and the clinical skills to assess benefits and risk of treatment, and we should not deprive ourselves from tools 
that can help us identify atrial fibrillation early enough. Next. Next. So if we decide to screen, I think that based on, and, and I will touch bases on the type of technologies and the couple of studies that, that I found that I wanted to include in today's journal club, um, I think we should focus on continuous screening. Next. Um, continuous screening that is sensitive, sensitive and specific. Okay, we don't want to increase the risk of, re, of, of excess resource utilization. Next that um, requires little or no uh, dexterity from the patient. I mean, we want our patients, our frail patients, the patients that we serve in our facilities to have kind of like a passive role um, on, the, on, on, on the process of a screening next, that target the highest risk patients. And I guess Jen said at the beginning, we can identify those patients because besides age, there are also other risk factors that can place patients at a higher risk than the average counterparts of their age. Next. And we, we should not target populations that will not benefit um, from, from, from finding atrial fibrillation or from treating atrial fibrillation due to life expectancy or potential complications from treatment. Next. So, and, and we also, again, uh, you know, talking a little bit about, you know, avoiding excess utilization, we need to actually have treat, treatment algorithms. So whenever these continuous monitoring finds atrial fibrillation, what do we need to do that is not just sending the patient straight to the hospital? Next. <coughs> so smartphones um, are, 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 are a potential, are a potential um, tool that could be used. Um, there is a study actually that was published on the Annals of Family Medicine um, in 2019, um, where um, next, where a group of patients um, used a group of a group of sorry a group of scientists were trying to validate um, the use of smartphones um, to detect atrial fibrillation. Next, and what they did is they got 240 patients from different clinical practices in the outpatient setting. Next, and. What they did is they, the patients held an actual iPhone while they were um, well, 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 they were connected to an EKG machine. Okay, so imagine this: I have atrial fibrillation. I, I have known history of atrial fibrillation. Okay, I know I'm a, a, and and I hold these device that identifies that I have atrial fibrillation or not. At the same to, at the same time, I'm hooked to a 12, 12 elite EKG that is, is recording my, my, my cardiac rhythm, next. And then uh, what they found is that with the algorithms that were embedded on that, on that um, device, um, the sensitivity and specificity uh, for the machine, to, for, for, for the phone to identify atrial fibrillation was 87, 87% or 98% actually um, uh, in, next. And when you and when they see the one lead EKG that was produced in the machine, and this was um, um, and and it was uh, interpreted that one lead EKG um, actually the sensitivity include to uh, improve to ninety percent. Okay. Next, so the only issue is, I mean, the, the conclusions I have from this study is that technology might work. Okay. But the only limitations that in terms of screening is that this is not a screening study. This is more 
how I can use a machine to identify a rhythm that I know, that, that is known to me, okay? And also it requires some dexterity. You know, you need to have a patient that is holding a phone in a specific way to, um, to capture a rhythm. Okay, next slide. Next. So wearable devices. I mean, there are several devices now in the market that have been cleared by the FDA. Next. In addition to that, um, such devices are reasonably, are reasonably sensitive and specific. Um, next. And the FDA actually is, is actually reducing the amount of burden for the approval process to have more of these devices in the market because they recognize the value of them. Next. And, when, and, and the, the most important thing perhaps is that the use of these devices when, when in, the, in, the, in the approval processes, the FDA has mentioned specifically that the use of these devices have to be used, have, have to be under the premises that there are gonna be some interference from the primary resource. We're gonna have in our case, in the pa patients in our nursing homes, we know we're gonna run out of battery and they're not gonna charge the, they're, gonna, they're not gonna charge the device. We know they're gonna pull it, they don't know what it is. So they are, there are certain limitations of using this technology in our patient population. Next. And, 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 and lastly, um, um, you know, think about the difference between, you know, uh, having an, an, an implantable monitor to, um, uh, to detect atrial fibrillation versus actually wearing a watch. Next. So, I mean, the last study that I want to bring to you in today's journal club is one that was published in JAMA. Um, this was published in, um, in December of this year, next, of last year, I'm sorry. Um, and what they did is they group a group of patients and, 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 uh, and did propensity matching, um, follow patients for approximately 90 days. And then you will see that there was not an actual 90 day follow-up period. It was, it was mostly 82 days, the actual average. Um, and, and they include only patients with atrial fibrillation. So we're talking about here, what is the actual accuracy of these wearable devices next? And from these large patient population, only 348 of them actually were, the, were wearing devices like this one. They did a match control as a, a, a propensity matching as, as I mentioned next. And what they found in this study is that the, those patients that were using uh, the wearable devices had more healthcare utilization, okay? Um, among them, I mean, including cardioversions, newer prescriptions, and visits to the emergency room. So the reason why I'm bringing this up is because these new devices seem to be very sensitive and specific in terms of, or I would say, very accurate in, in identifying atrial fibrillation, but also come with the potential cost of having increased resource utilization that otherwise we wouldn't have. Next. So to finish, I would say, are we dead in the water? Um, because if you think about it, the evidence against wearable devices is applicable to the general population. But again, are we thinking about the specific patient population that we, that we serve that has a, a, a higher prevalence of atrial fibrillation that are more sensitive not only to the awful complication or devastating complications of a stroke, 
but also the simple fact of having atrial fibrillation affects your function and cognition even more. Um, so if, 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 although again, we are not, the, the reason why I'm bringing all, you know, all these studies, because I don't want us to think that, that these wearable devices are good to monitor AFib burden, is meaning the amount of time that people stay on atrial fibrillation. Uh, I think that the role of these devices um, is to screen for atrial fibrillation and many other things. And as Dr. Uh, Alexander said once, um, myself being so passionate about trying to identify sepsis in nursing homes early enough, before, as Dr. Joe says, before I'm on the wrong side of the graph, um, I think that these wearable devices have a role on treating and taking care of our patients uh, or the patients that we serve. Because I truly believe that early diagnosis of newly developed atrial fibrillation can avoid a functional decline, uh, physical and, co and, and cognitive. That early diagnosis of atrial fibrillation or new, new, newly onset atrial fibrillation can avoid catastrophic outcomes such as stroke. Because if, again, if the first sign of atrial fibrillation is a stroke, it was already too late for us, like, a, like, like for that patient that we presented at the beginning. That the present concept or anticoagulation now with the new scoring systems and the new emerging evidence, I mean, I think that that can be discussed. And I think that we have to start moving um, away from the fact that anticoagulation is the evil that might be safer than what we think. Um, and definitely that, you know, again, these newer evidence that is emerging, specifically that study that I showed uh, on, on, on um, that retrospective real world um, experience on Medicare uh, beneficiaries, things that medication like Epixibam could increase the level of comfort that we have using anticoagulation. Next. So the lady that we had at the beginning, okay, what would it happen? I think that what was gonna happen in the future is, next, that instead of having this sad story, next, we will see that when she, when she comes to your office in the ALF, you advise her about her risk of development atrial fibrillation because of her history of hypertension, obesity, and, and, and diabetes. And she decided to start using an electronic watch that can detect and explain her abnormal heartbeats and her sleep quality, and even notifies her if she falls. And after using the device, she gets an alert that says that she had an irregular heartbeat. And what happens is that technology now is so good because these things now get connected to the internet, um, even without having a cell phone close by, sends that alert immediately to, your primary, to, to her primary care physician, who does not freak out, because knows what to do because there are treatment, there are specific treatment algorithms that are already in place. He calls the home health agency, gets an EKG, okay? The EKG um, actually confirms that the patient is, is an atrial fibrillation. Um, and you follow up with her in the clinic right away, that same day, she, you start her normal anticoagulation and you refer her to cardiology. Um, and I think that this is going to be the future. I think that we should steer away from, you know, uh, not, not, not using anticoagulation, especially with the new data. And I think we should start opening our eyes to this new technology that would allow us to take care of our patients um, without having the burden of, uh, uh, in our practices, okay? Next. 
And again, what I always say is as the largest chapter of, of AMDA, um, FANDA should be, you know, the society that, that drives changes on standards of care in the patient population that we serve, that is patient-centered and evidence-based. With that in mind, I'm gonna, with that, I, I am done and I will open it for discussion. Thank you very, very much. And again, I apologize that it was a little bit choppy, but it's very difficult to, you know, keep talking or saying next and next. Thank you, Dr. Reyes. Thank you, Shanu. Um, if anyone has any questions for either of um, our speakers, please take yourself off mute or you can enter it into the chat. I just want to say I thank you both for a very thought provoking um, presentation. And I, I am very curious to, to know what you think about possibly doing a study with wearables in the nursing facilities. I haven't seen one as of yet, um, but I know I've read a couple of white papers and research papers um, on looking at the the 65 and older population and wearables and and what what we're finding with um, some of that data that's coming out. I'm just curious. Um, is that that's to you, Dr. Reyes? Yeah. Oh, okay. So, so there there are currently in it there are. Um, Apple, actually, I'm, and I'm sorry, I'm just saying, saying Apple because it's, it's, I have no stocks on Apple of any kind and I have no, no financial interest on, on, but Apple actually now has, has a partner with, um, uh, it, it, I think it's the Institute of Aging and they're trying to actually fund research based on the, 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 the wearables. I'm not aware of any ongoing, um, you know, major trial and actually I check on on clinicaltrials.gov um, as yesterday and I couldn't find anything um, by the way I mean if you're going to just to let you know if you want to try to get a, one of these wearable devices to be used for a specific condition you need to submit um, a, a, a NDA anyway okay so which is a, a, a well a new no an NDA a, um, a new device um, application to the FDA. So as yesterday, there was nothing in clinicaltrials.gov that is registered. I don't know if, if somebody else has other information. But um, Dr. Dr. Sanders, so going back to, to like, you know, following up with, with, with the second part of my answer, I think that that there are, there are two things you need to consider. First is the utility of constant monitoring. Okay, as as you know, using fixed parameters in in um, in, um, in 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 our patient population to determine so having thresholds so when we should you know consider sepsis or when we should consider you know hypertension in our patient population it, it, that those fixed parameters do not work really well. Um, I mean, variance from what is normal to each one of of, of our patients seems to be a more realistic approach to determine when there is a serious illness. Um, and I'm talking about, for example, somebody that we have with a systolic blood pressure, for example, of 150 in our facility. If they drop their blood pressure to 110 um, or 105, they wouldn't need criteria for, you know, for hypertension and wouldn't be concerned about sepsis, okay? But the reality is they will have, a, they had a, a, a drop in blood pressure or more than 30%. So, 
I, I want to use that as an example that I, I would use variance. What these devices are going to help us do is to determine variance on what is accepted for that for a specific individual and determine and possibly um, identify acute illness uh, fast, you know, early enough to avoid complications. And we will steer away from using fixed parameters that definitely are not sensitive or specific enough for the patient population that we serve. I think that that's one of the major, um, one of the major uh, achievements that this technology can have in the near future. Um, on the other hand comes the issue of privacy, you know, how much our residents wants to be monitored all the time. Um, and, 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 and the actual, and then, and then the second problem is also, you know, resource utilization. Are we, are we designing algorithms that are specific enough? So every time there is an alert, that alert does not trigger unnecessary um, testing and treatment. So those are the two other, the two major concerns I have. But I think the net benefit of using these devices in our, um, in our settings is, is there, there is a lot of potential. Thank you. Any other questions or comments? Hi, this is Simone. Oh, go ahead, I'm sorry about that. Should I, should I go ahead? Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Hi, it's Simone. Thank you so much for this awesome presentation. And I echo what Dr. Sanders Cepeda said. It just unfolds a lot of things that you have to think about and it's um, impactful. So my question, Dr. Reyes, is with the wearable device and the impact as far as algorithm is concerned, so how do we detect, say for instance, a patient that has a new onset AFib? Is there a way to determine or to get more information in regards to other parameters? Um, are they a dialysis patient? Do they have a, a mechanical valve? Is there something going on that will determine what steps we take as far as a vitamin K antagonist versus a DOAC? So will there be more information in reference to attached to the wearable device? I, okay, so I think that I think that the, the, the question you're asking, if we, dev, if, if we identify atrial fibrillation, if we design treatment algorithms in terms of anticoagulation, should we have, should we have clear guidance of what to start if it's, if it's appropriate? That's that, correct. Because yes, there's so I mean, many other parameters and other um, diagnosis and comorbidity that we have to look at before starting anticoagulation. And again, based on the CHADS VAS score, which I did not catch the beginning of the discussion, but based on the CHADS VAS score too, we have to take a look and analyze whether they, whether, whether it's necessary to treat with an anticoagulant or an antiplatelet. So is there more that we have to unpack? Oh, oh definitely. I think that, I think that we, we should, at this point, again, the, 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 what I'm proposing is to try to open our minds to the use of these wearable devices in, uh, in, our, in, in our settings. Um, in terms of, I mean, the, the literature is clear and actually it, in, in what anticoagulant is, is to be used in every specific circumstances. So there should be plenty of guidance attached to the use of these devices. If we're gonna use more anticoagulation, 
you should have more decision support systems um, to guide the process of deciding if somebody deserves or, or needs anticoagulation or not and what type of anticoagulation. Hopefully that answers your question. Um, you know, we, we, we have, uh, you know, and, and I have to disclose that I, I'm part of the team that, that helps, uh, helps Dr. Joe um, maintaining or, uh, and updating um, Interact. I mean, I think that Interact is, is a good is a good example of it. I mean, we Interact actually is 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 a quality improvement process that helps you. I mean, one of the things that I like about about Interact the most is it helps you with early detection. But early detection does not help that much unless you have a a a, a, a algorithm that helps you decide what to do if you encounter those specific circumstances. So we have we have experience in our in our settings. About the use of the use of algorithms to help um, to, to for decision support. Okay, thank you. Any other questions or comments? Diane, I, I have a question and a comment. Um, thank you guys both for first of all uh, for great presentation. Um, one of the key questions that I feel Bernardo was here um, is the risk of uh, thromboembolic stroke uh, with proxismal versus persistent atrial fibrillation. Um, and my understanding in the article, um, it says that the risk is uncertain. I don't know how it compares to persistent. Historically, somewhere along the line, I have no literature to quote this, I used to almost have the feeling or have heard from cardiology or whatever, that there might even be an increased risk for an event with proxismal atrial fib versus persistent. But I don't know if that's true. And I don't, not aware of literature to support that. If indeed uh, there is a higher risk, that certainly would drive even further the use of uh, measurable devices, you know, wearables, et cetera. Um, and, and it would increase the value of being able to detect what they call subclinical uh, atrial fibrillation. Thanks. Um, I mean, the, the, the first. I mean, the, the, the first part of the question is if paroxysmal atrial fibrillation uh, could confers the, the same risk as persistent atrial fibrillation, right? Right. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure if if uh, Shadow wants to take this one, or you, or you don't mind if I take it, Shadow. Yeah, no, go ahead, Dr. Reyes. I'll uh, try to so, jump in so, if I can think of anything. So the, the, the literature shows, uh, the literature, that's an interesting question of problem. So the literature shows that the, the risk is exactly the same. I mean, the burden of atrial fibrillation does not, is not directly correlated to the actual risk. Um, the time that you develop the symptoms and the, if you think about it, the CHAS-BAS score does not tell you if you have paroxysmal or not, right? Once you identify atrial fibrillation, um, you know, you're at the, at the same risk and, and, and your chest vest for what it does is it, 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 it guides you about the type of anticoagulation or, or if you need anticoagulation or, or, or antiplatelet therapy. Um, but, um, you know, the current literature suggests that if you have paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, um, you're at, at equally the risk of having a stroke that if you have persistence. Um, now, the second part of your question is these wearable devices will increase the diagnosis of paroxysmal AFib, right? Right. Uh, yes, it, it, it's right. definitely. Now, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna say something very interesting here. What Chanu said at the beginning, 
is that some of the some of the reasons why people have paroxysmal atrial fibrillation are reversible. So think about somebody that is at risk of having a stroke. You you identify because you identify paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, and then you're asking common questions like, "Do you have sleep apnea?" Okay, that is not being treated. So maybe you can even treat the paroxysmal atrial fibrillation with a CPAP machine. You're avoiding somebody. You're avoiding a stroke by just providing a, a, a CPAP to somebody. So I think that's where the other piece of, 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 of you know, relevant uh, benefit is here. And it's, it's not only identifies is early identification and also and then identification of paroxysmal atrial that commonly goes unnoticed until somebody just gets a stroke. Okay. Yeah, and Dr. Uh, Reyes, to kind of add on to that, I mean, from what I know about the Rocket AF trial, I believe that their initial aim was also to kind of evaluate if there were any, um, what the rates of thromboembolic uh, strokes were and between patients with paroxysmal versus persistent. And I think theoretically, they were suggesting that, you know, patients in persistent atrial fibrillation are in a, a longer state of um, you know, that irregular rhythm or that, that, that state of standstill, which actually predisposes the patients to form a more thromboembolic formation within the atrial appendage. Um, as, as, far, as far as I believe, I think in the Rocket AF, they did mention that, that persistent had a slightly higher risk of thromboembolic uh, phenomena, I mean, thromboembolic strokes, especially in patients with high-risk uh, features, you know, for patients who had a CHADVASC of more than four, um, specifically is what they actually were able to find in, in further subgroup analyses, I, I believe, is what they had um, found in that. Well, you see, well, I, I, I'm sorry, Dr. Reyes. I was going to say we're, we're way over time. Okay. Um, please finish your comment, though, because I, I definitely, this is very, all very good and interesting. No, I mean, no, the, the, the comment I was going to make is that, 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 that the patient population included in the rocket trial um, I don't know how, I don't know what it, it was, it was, uh, it, how, how many of those actually are, because of the current recommendations from the American Heart Association guidelines, you know, they, 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 they don't make clear that differentiation, but obviously, again, um, my, my, my advice to people is that if, even if you get, if you identify paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, you should be considered the actual risk of stroke. And it's calculated by the, the chat bask who score and then store population. But I mean, I, I obviously, Shanu, I thank you very much for the comment. It's, it's, it's very valid. And, and Bernardo, thank you. I, I just want to thank you both. Um, you know, Dr. Rivas is saying maybe we need a part two. I think we might need a part two and a deep dive into thinking about um, how we're utilizing um, wearables, algorithms, and um, I didn't even get to ask all my questions about AI and thinking about where we go from there. So um, I may have to hit both of you up <laughs> in, in the upcoming weeks. So I thank I, you both. I totally agree, yeah. <laughs> this will be recorded so you guys can um, listen to it and the handouts will be made available to you. Thank you all for joining. References for this podcast and links to the previous recordings can be found at paltc.org slash journal club. If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, go to our learning management system at 
apex.paltc.org. That's A-P-E-X dot P-A-L-T-C dot org. Click on the podcast and follow the link to this episode.